vacation, a sabbatical, is a time uh, away from the normal daily responsibilities of pastoral ministry for the purpose of renewal and refreshment. So uh, I have the privilege of filling in for Drew uh, for the next several weeks, and then for the next several months, a number of faithful men will be bringing us the word week in and week out. So we are all so grateful for Drew's ministry, and I hope you will join me in just praying for him over the course of the next few months, that these uh, months away would be deeply refreshing for him and for Christina and their family. Will you pray with me now as we get ready to look at God's Word together? Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for speaking to the prophets and the apostles and seeing to it by your Spirit that that word was written down, preserved, translated. And Lord, here we are thousands of years later with your word in English, a language we can understand. We pray that you would speak now as we look at your written word, as we consider it together. God, empower each of us during this time to hear from you, to see you, to see ourselves, and to be changed. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. It was the spring of 1862, one year into the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln was frustrated. He was frustrated with his general-in-chief, George McClellan, because General McClellan was once again dragging his feet, delaying in attacking the Confederate army. Now, McClellan was brilliant, meticulous, and popular, but he was cautious to a fault. He seemed never to lack fresh excuses for why it wasn't quite time to advance on the enemy. And in one letter in April of 1862, Lincoln wrote to McClellan and said this, once more, let me tell you it is indispensable to you that you strike a blow. And you might not be surprised from the tone of that remark that within a certain amount of time, McClellan was relieved of his duties. It took some time, but Lincoln did find a general who shared his tenacity and willingness to attack, and that was Ulysses S. Grant. Now, Grant, unlike McClellan, was virtually unknown at the beginning of the war, but he gained a reputation over those early years of the Civil War for a willingness to take daring action. And at one point, Lincoln said of Grant, I can't spare this man. He fights. There's a time for preparing. There's a time for cutting your losses and retreating. But there's also a time to fight. And the book of Jude was written for just such a time. Would you turn there now? This is the second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. 
The book of Jude is short. Its author is almost completely unknown to history, and its destination is a mystery. Some of its contents, as we'll see, are strange, and it consistently ranks among the least studied books in the Bible. But, but this little letter is like a thunderclap waking us up from a complacent and comfortable Christianity. We're going to spend the next four weeks walking through this letter, and today we will begin by looking at the first four verses. So please follow along as I read Jude verses 1 through 4. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. If the gospel is worth receiving, then it must also be worth fighting for. That's what this passage shows us. That's what this book shows us. If the gospel, the good news of Christianity, if that message is worth receiving by faith, then it must also be worth fighting for. In this passage, we have two parts, a greeting and the opening paragraph of the main section of the letter, really the opening uh, salvo in the argument that Jude will make. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at this greeting, verses 1 and 2, and this opening paragraph, verses 3 and 4, and consider how it makes the case that the gospel that is worth receiving is by definition also worth fighting for. So let's look first at the greeting. This is, again, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is a customary part of any ancient letter. Letters in Jude's day would begin uh, with the identity of the sender, the writer, and the identity of the recipients. We've seen this in other New Testament letters. So look at who this is from. This is from Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, one of the questions about this book is, who is this? Who is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James? Well, most likely, this is the younger brother of James, the famous leader of the church in Jerusalem who wrote the book of James, shows up a number of times in Acts Uh, Paul, in the book of Galatians, refers to James as a pillar. So it looks like Jude is 
probably the younger and less well-known brother of this James. Interestingly, that would also make Jude the half-brother of Jesus. So this is the author. Who is he writing to? Who is this letter intended for? Well, the, the most we can say is that it's intended for Christians, which means it was intended for a church or, or a group of churches. You can tell by how he describes them in verse 1. But surprisingly, at least to us, he mentions no city or region. So we, we really don't know where this church or group of churches was. Some have said, well, maybe this was intended uh, to be a general letter for the whole church. But when you look at what Jude says, it, it sounds like the issue he's addressing is specific enough that this is almost certainly intended for a specific church in a specific time and place. So that, that's the basic info of the greeting. Is there anything else Jude is doing here? Uh, I think there is. And this is, again, common in our New Testament letters, that the greeting is often loaded with theological content in such a way that it prepares the recipients for the argument that is to follow. If you look at greetings in uh, other letters outside of the Bible, it's not uncommon to see very short greetings. Uh, from so-and-so to so-and-so, peace, and then start the letter. So the New Testament is, the New Testament letters that we have are unusual in how long and expanded many of their greetings are. And this one, although not as long as some, uh, carries some important theological freight. And what I think Jude is doing, in addition to the, the necessary function of, of greeting his recipients, is he's reminding them of how precious their salvation is. Because look at how he describes them. He calls them called in verse 1, meaning they were chosen by God. They are beloved and kept. So these people, as Christians, have God's affection set upon them, and they have God's power at work to protect them. In effect, what, what Jude seems to be doing in, in preparation for what follows is reminding them of how precious the experiential realities of the gospel are. He's reminding them that the gospel is worth receiving. It is a glorious privilege to be counted among those who have embraced the good news of Jesus by faith. So that's the greeting. It not only greets, it reminds. It reminds us, as it reminded those first recipients, of the value of the gospel, of the worth of this message that we hold as followers of Jesus. Now, let's look at the opening paragraph of the body of the letter, verses 3 and 4. After his greeting, Jude now begins to make the case that the gospel is worth fighting for. The gospel is worth fighting for, in particular, when it is threatened by distortions. 
That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. The gospel is worth fighting for when it is threatened with distortions. Look with me at verse 3. This is the key verse of the whole letter. We don't always get verses like this in the New Testament that tell us what the book is about, what the main message is, what the purpose is. This little verse does that for us with the book of Jude. This is what Jude is about. This is what Jude is aiming at. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So it sounds like Jude actually wanted to write a different kind of letter than the one that we have here. But as he was thinking about that letter, or maybe even starting that letter, he received word of a problem going on in this church, and his purpose changed. His purpose became appealing to them, exhorting them, calling them to contend for the faith. So this phrase, contend for the faith, really is the summary of this whole letter. This is what it is about. So we need to understand what does this mean? Well, in some sense, you have to read the whole letter to understand what Jude means by it, but we can start with uh, this phrase itself in verse 3. First, the word contend. The word contend here means to exert intense effort in a struggle. To exert intense effort in a struggle. This word shows up nowhere else in the New Testament, but it was a common word uh, in ancient Greek culture to describe the uh, Greek athletic contests. Now, it's not clear how far Jude intends to press that metaphor, if he even intends to create a metaphor with this word. But at the very least, we get the idea of contending as striving vigorously on behalf of a cause. So that's what Jude is is appealing to them to do, to strive vigorously on behalf of a cause. And the cause here, looking at the very next part of the phrase, is the faith. They are to exert intense effort in a struggle on behalf of the faith. Now, this word faith, when we see it in the New Testament, we usually think, and rightly so, of a person's belief and trust that he or she exercises in Christ. That is what it means most of the time. But the word faith can also refer to the object of our belief and trust, that which is believed, that which we do uh, accept and receive by our trust. We're familiar with this way of using the word when we say things like the Christian faith, the Christian belief system. That's what Jude has in mind, although here he almost certainly is thinking specifically of the gospel, that core message that forms the very heart of Christianity. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, by his death, 
and resurrection has made a way for humans to be reconciled to God and for creation to be restored. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has made a way for human beings to be reconciled to our creator and for the creation itself to be put back together. That that is the very heart of what Christianity is about, this announcement that Jesus has died and risen and is king. It is also the case that the gospel has certain entailments, certain things that necessarily follow from it. You could think of an entailment of the gospel as something that has to be true if the gospel is true. So these are things that either form the conceptual foundation, which the gospel assumes, or things that necessarily follow as an inference of the gospel. So an entailment of the gospel would be something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Without the Trinity, you can't have the biblical good news of salvation through Jesus. Another entailment of the gospel would be the the deity of Christ or the incarnation. Uh, An entailment of the gospel would also be the importance of following Jesus' teaching. So what Jude is saying in verse 3 is that the good news of Jesus is worth fighting for, and that at the very least we can say there are situations where the gospel must be fought for. And that really brings us to verse 4, which says, here's what's happening now in their situation that required this contending. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So notice the very first word of the verse. It is for, F-O-R, because. So verse 4 is telling us why Jude found it necessary to write an appeal to contend for the faith. Why was it the case that they needed to contend. Well, it's because there's a problem. And the problem, verse 4 says, is that false teachers have snuck in to their church. Now, he doesn't mean that they broke into the church building in the middle of the night and they're hiding in the church rafters. He's saying that these Christians, or people claiming to be Christians, and almost certainly claiming to be Christian teachers or ministers, or pastors, these people have misrepresented their real agenda. They've they've come into the church, they're probably a, a traveling Christian teacher, they've arrived at this place, and they are presenting themselves as orthodox, Bible believing Christian teachers, but in fact, they have a different, hidden agenda that is at cross-purposes to biblical, orthodox Christianity. What is that agenda? Well, the way Jude describes it here is perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in a sense, we can wait until verses 5 through 16 to really explore what's happening. Because verses 5 through 16, as we'll see next week, are one long elaboration of verse 4. So verse 4 gets unpacked in verses 5 through 16. But today, I want you to notice these two things about verse 4. First, notice that the contending or the struggling or the fighting of verse 3. Verse 4 clarifies that that fighting is internal, not external. What I mean is, Jude does not call these Christians to go out into the unbelieving world to fight for the faith. This is a fight that is within the church for the sake of preserving and protecting the message. Now, that's not to say that Christians have nothing to say to the outside world. Uh, It is to say, though, that when the New Testament talks about that public witness, it usually talks about it differently. It talks about it in terms of being ready with an answer, with respect and gentleness. It talks about it uh, as walking in wisdom toward outsiders, always with your speech uh, being gracious. At the very least, if we're going to follow Jude's argument, we have to pay attention and notice from the beginning that this contending that he's thinking about is internal within the church family. Second, notice that what is at stake here is nothing less than the gospel itself. So there is a time for agreeing to disagree with other believers about theology and doctrine. There is a time for peaceably parting ways while still acknowledging one another as genuine representatives of Christ. This is what we sometimes call theological triage, which means we respond proportionately to disagreements within the church family, within the Christian community, based on what the disagreement is about. Not everything has to be a contend for the faith level disagreement. But look at what's at stake in verse 4. This is about turning the grace of God into sensuality, and it's ultimately about rejecting the lordship of Jesus himself. That is worthy of standing your ground. That is worthy of speaking up and saying something. In other words, this kind of agenda, this kind of activity on the part of a supposed Christian leader is worthy of fighting. It's worthy of resisting. If the gospel is worth receiving, and it is, then it must also be worth fighting for, defending, protecting, preserving. One of the reasons this is hard for us to do is that we live in a pluralistic society. That's not bad, but living in a pluralistic society trains us in certain social habits that can make it hard for us to contend for the faith. What I mean is this. If you have a society like ours with lots of different 
religions and lots of different ideologies and lots of different subcultures, one of the things you need for that society to function is you need people to be able to hold their beliefs privately and allow other people to hold their beliefs privately. Now, as a side note, it's worth pointing out that that very setup has its roots in Christianity, because Christianity firmly believes that you cannot coerce someone into true Christian belief. You cannot impose Christianity in any meaningful sense on someone who doesn't want it. So that very idea that makes a pluralistic society work is, in effect, an inference from Christianity itself. But here's the, here's the problem. That social habit of privatizing your beliefs and convictions can be absolutized. It can become such a dominant way of operating that it always feels inappropriate to tell someone that they're wrong about something as private and sensitive as what they believe about God or what they say about the Bible. It can feel to us unloving or judgmental to stand up and say, that is not uh, right. That's not what the Bible says. And we've seen what happens when you allow theological beliefs to be absolutely privatized. If every doctrine is negotiable, you lose the gospel. If the gospel itself has to be modernized according to people's personal preferences, then you end up creating a different religion altogether. If Christianity is anything, then it's really nothing. And, and we can think about it this way. Taking our cues from Jude, we protect the things that are precious to us. We protect the things that are precious to us. And the church exists to protect the gospel. That's why we are here. That's why local churches exist to protect and preserve the gospel. That doesn't mean we go out into the world policing other people's beliefs. It does mean, though, that we guard, for example, our doctrinal statements. It does mean that churches have a responsibility to require certain things of those who would be members of those churches. It does mean that a church has the responsibility to guard the preaching of the word, that certain things will not be allowed to be said from this platform. That's not just narrow-minded pride. That is the responsibility of the local church to preserve and protect the gospel. And here's the thing. This shouldn't be driven by anger or pride or insecurity. Ultimately, this posture of protecting the good news, preserving the message, it is fueled by the recognition that this message is the most precious thing in the universe. To be a Christian is to have discovered that this message, scorned and mocked by the multitudes throughout history, is in fact the hope of the world, and it is your very life. And to be a Christian, to be a part of the local church, 
is to bear at least a part of the responsibility to protect this message. Because if we don't do it, if the church doesn't do it, who will? One of the greatest examples of this was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was an African pastor in the 4th century. And the great controversy of his day was the identity of Jesus. This was literally ripping the church apart in the 4th century. So the church had decided early in that century that Jesus was in fact God himself, God in the flesh. That's in the Bible. We believe that. We champion that. And Athanasius believed that. But the false teaching known as Arianism, uh, that those statements were formulated to combat, it, it made quite a comeback. Arianism, in short, said that Jesus was more than a man, but not quite God. And for a number of reasons, uh, it, it was growing in Athanasius's day in terms of how many people believed it and in terms of uh, powerful people like the Roman emperor supporting it and endorsing it. So you have Athanasius, uh, the bishop of Alexandria, standing up against, in some cases, what felt like or what must have felt like the whole world. You had emperors pressuring Christian leaders to subscribe to Arianism, even though they previously had not. Athanasius refused. And it's not as if he was uh, marshalling some kind of army or using violence. Athanasius got run out of town multiple times. He spent a significant portion of his tenure as the Bishop of Alexandria not in Alexandria. He, he spent years in exile in the desert because he was run out of town. But here's the incredible thing about Athanasius. For all of that opposition, for all of that pressure, for all of the incentives that he had to just compromise, to get along, he refused. He stood up to rival bishops, to huge masses of people, and in some cases to the emperor himself. And incredibly, in many of these cases, he outlasted them. Athanasius realized clearly that if Jesus is not God, then salvation is impossible. This is what one historian says about Athanasius. Of all the opponents of Arianism, Athanasius was most to be feared. The reasons for this were not to be found in subtlety of logical argument, nor in elegance of style, nor even in political perspicacity. I had to look that up. That means clarity of understanding. In all these areas, Athanasius could be bested by his opponents. So what made him so dangerous? So dangerous that by the end of his life, even an emperor that opposed him decided to leave him alone because he was so intimidated by the prospect of messing with Athanasius. Here's what it was. His monastic discipline, his roots among the people, his fiery spirit, and listen to this, and his profound and unshakable conviction made him invincible. What Jude is saying to us is that the gospel is worth that. 
Now, we'll have to keep following the argument of this letter to learn more about how do we fight? When do we fight? What exactly is going on here? All of that remains for future weeks. But today, it is enough for us to wrestle with the fact that we do have to fight sometimes. And the gospel, this message of a crucified and risen Savior, is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded by this passage that we are dealing with weighty, eternal things. We ask that you would give us the strength, give us the courage, give us the wisdom, give us the gentleness and the discernment to contend well for this precious and holy faith. We pray this through Christ, who lives though he died and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.